You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. Good morning, everybody. Um, my name is Morris. I'm one of the, uh, the leaders, uh, one of the elders of the church here. And um, I sort of represent the, uh, the export of Hope Church Ipswich. So there's so many great things going on in the church here. And it's overspilling into uh, the regions around and the nations beyond. And I represent the church, uh, which is why I'm not always here on, on Sundays. It's not because I'm uh, having a morning in. It's, uh, I'm normally uh, in another church or in another nation uh, representing your mission in those places. So the, the influence of what God is doing here is being felt in the towns around, in Stowmarket, in Colchester and Felixstowe and beyond but also in other nations. And uh, over the next couple of years, I'm going to be particularly busy uh, looking to establish some church planting hubs in the mainland of Europe. So Stockholm and Helsinki up in the north, Frankfurt in the center of uh, Europe, where we're planting churches that we hope will become church planting churches to carry all the goodness of God that we're enjoying here, carry into nations beyond as well. Uh, uh, we're also looking to establish a fresh uh, hub in Basel, uh, in uh, Switzerland. And uh, Switzerland is uh, really a very, very interesting nation. It borders so many other nations. Uh, Basel is really on the tri-nations border. You've got Germany, you've got France, you've got Switzerland, you spill into Italy, you spill into Austria, Luxembourg, Liechtenstein, Spain, wherever. So if you've got a heart for these nations, you need to let me know because we're going to be busy in these nations in the years to come, and many others as well. And that's part of what God has called us to here. He's called us to be a beautiful expression here, right in the center of the town here in Ipswich. Uh, But we're going to be being very, very fruitful and multiplying and sending out as an aircraft carrier, sending out to other nations beyond. And it's, uh, it's very, very exciting. And uh, we'll keep you posted as to what's happening in the months and years to come. I've been given the awesome responsibility of speaking today about the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God. I mean, it's just uh, the whole Bible is about Jesus, so where to start? Uh, Tom obviously really, really very, very helpfully opened up our little mini-series on the Trinity last week, looking at God the Father. I'm going to be looking at God the Son, Jesus Christ, and I'm going to be starting in Acts chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles there, that's where we're going to make our start. So Acts chapter 9 and verses 19 to 22, we're looking at a character called Saul. Saul was a very, very senior uh, religious leader in, uh, in the days of Jesus <clears throat> uh, who had this, uh, he, he was uh, absolutely set against this new Christian movement that had just broken out and he was uh, absolutely determined to destroy this. And as we know, he then has this, if you read through Chapter 9 there has this encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, which completely turns his worldview. And Saul is then later named uh, Paul, who's this very familiar character throughout the New Testament, uh, through the narratives of the New Testament, and many of the letters of the New Testament come from Paul. And this is where his story starts, uh, as Saul the Pharisee. And uh, we're going to pick this story up. He's just uh, encountered Jesus And it says in verse 19, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. These are the ones he'd actually gone to go and uh, have arrested. 
at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. So here we have Saul, utterly devoted to stamping out Christianity on the way to Damascus to persecute the Christians there. Jesus sovereignly intervenes in his life, utterly shocks and stuns him with a bright light on the Damascus road. And Paul was blinded and didn't eat or drink for three days as he watched his whole world turn upside down. Everything he had built his life on was swept away. His whole worldview turned upside down. When you meet Jesus, your world will be turned upside down. Before, amen. Before you meet Jesus, it's built on the wrong foundation. It's built, built on any other foundation other than Jesus. He's then going to come, and you're going to build everything on him. He's the rock, and your worldview is going to change, and everything is going to be turned upside down. John Piper says this, The Jesus that Saul thought was dead was not dead. Not only was he not dead, but he was the living Lord of the universe. Jesus was able to make light shine into the world, speak audibly to humans on earth, strike a man blind, give visions in prayer, send a man named Ananias with the word that Saul was Jesus' chosen instrument to spread praise to the nations. So Paul's whole worldview collapsed in Damascus and was rebuilt with the great unshakable stone pillars of truth about Jesus. Amen? So let's look at what are these pillars. What are the pillars of Paul's new worldview? Well, look at those verses we just looked at in chapter 9 there. Jesus, the hated, rejected, crucified criminal, Paul understands is the Son of God and the long-hoped-for Messiah. In verse 20, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And then in verse 22, Saul grew more and more powerful, baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah, which means the anointed one, the fulfiller of all God's promises to Israel. So here's Jesus that Saul came to destroy. And now he's saying, look, hey, he's the son of God and he's the Messiah, the promised Messiah. The last words we hear coming out of Saul's mouth before his conversion, is, who are you? Who are you? And then the first words he says after his conversion is, Jesus is the Son of God. So important. So beautiful. This truth, this worldview is foundational to being a Christian and foundational to the rest of Paul's life as the greatest missionary who ever lived. Jesus is the Son of God. So what does it mean for us that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, firstly, it means that he is God. And this is where you have to do a little bit of work on your, your vocabulary because uh, we're going to be talking about the word beget, which I would hazard to suggest is not a word you use in everyday conversation, but it's a very, very important word for us to get our hands on because we know from the creeds and from the hymns that Jesus is the only begotten Son of the Father. 
in heaven. And that's a very, very important principle because being begotten is different to being created. When you beget something, it's something of your own nature. Yeah? C.S. Lewis, it's a great quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, when you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets human babies. A beaver begets little beavers. A bird begets eggs, which turn into little birds. But when you make or create, you make something of a different kind from yourself. So we're created in the image of God. Jesus is begotten of God. A bird makes a nest. A beaver builds a dam. A man makes a computer or something. But Jesus is begotten of God, not created. Right? We're created in God's image. Jesus is begotten eternally of the Father. So when we say that Jesus is the Son of God, we mean that God has begotten his Son in his very same divine nature, nothing less from all eternity. So begetting holds two truths together. Okay? And these are the two truths. These, this is the mystery of the Trinity. And, you know, it's not something that is very easy to understand. That's why we just say, well, this is a mystery. It's amazing, but these two things are true. One, God the Father is not God the Son. God the Son is not God the Father. They are distinct persons, distinct centers of consciousness, and they relate to each other. But the Father and the Son are one God, not two gods. One essence, one divine nature from all eternity without any beginning. The Father has always had a perfect image of himself, a divine reflection or radiance equal to himself, namely the Son. So this is the revelation for Paul uh, when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Who are you? You're the Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. That's the first thing we understand, that Jesus is God. The second thing we understand is that God is demonstrating his unique love for Jesus. We need to understand the identity of God. And God is identified to us in a very simple way. God is love. And he's demonstrating his love to us. By showing something, pulling the curtain back a little bit and showing this amazing, eternal, loving community of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And his love for his Son is unique. In Colossians, Paul describes Jesus in this way. He says he's rescued us. God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. We are adopted, created sons. Jesus is the only begotten son of the Father. It's a unique love. Two times in his earthly life, at his baptism on the Mount of Transfiguration, God breaks in and says, this is my beloved son. So when we call Jesus the son of God, we have in our minds the truth that he is God and that there is a unique relationship of infinite love between God the Father and God the Son, which is different from all other loves. But out of that love, out of that eternal heaven of 
loving community, something overspills. God says, let's have a family. I want to have a family that I can share myself with and share my love with and invite them into that and to have that for all eternity. And so he creates us because he wants to have a loving relationship with us. We know that we broke that relationship. We'll come on to that. And so God loves us so much that he sends the son whom he loves to rescue us. Yeah? It is because God loves us he sent his son into the world to save us. I'm going to unpack all that in a bit. But before we do that, I'm just going to break in at this point, And I'm just going to bring to your attention something that has been in the news quite recently that you may have been aware of. And that was an interview uh, that was subject to a charge of blasphemy with a certain uh, famous British personality. And uh, see if you can guess who it is. Here's the uh, conversation. Asked what he would say if he was confronted by God at the pearly gates of heaven, this person replied, I would say, bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world to which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I would say. Who would say that? <laughs> I love Stephen Fry, but I think he's on thin ice here. All right, okay. So the person interviewing him had a second question. So, you think you're going to get into heaven like that? <laughs> and this only served to fuel Stephen Fry's anger. I wouldn't want to, he insisted. I wouldn't want to get in on his terms. They're wrong. Now, if I died and it was Pluto, Hades, or the 12 Greek gods, then I would have more truck with it because they didn't present themselves as being all-seeing, all-wise, all-kind, all-beneficent because the God that created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac, utter maniac, totally selfish. We have to spend our life on our knees thanking him. What kind of God would do that? Now, I think this demands a response. (laughs) Do you agree with me? Because the world rejoiced when they heard this. The media, the internet, the Twitter sphere, everything else. Whoa, well done, Stephen. You've said exactly. You've got it right. You've got God in a corner. You've got the, your foot on the neck of the church. Yeah, you're right. Okay, I think this deserves a response. Out of my... I like Stephen Fry. He's brought a lot of rich things to my life with his humor and his intelligence. I don't want him to have to face God with this on his account. So out of my compassion for Stephen, if you're listening in, Stephen, I know you live in Suffolk. uh, Oh, no, he lives in Norfolk, doesn't he? So come and listen in to me now because I want to help you here. First of all, this is the first first response. God did not create a world to which there is such misery that is not our fault. That, you've been misled, Stephen. I don't know where you read that. I don't know whether we went to a church that taught you that, but it is not true. God created a beautiful world. The reason there is evil in the world is our fault. Okay? A world to which there is such misery that it's not our fault. No, it is our fault, Steve. It's our fault. We allowed evil into the world. God didn't create the world with bone cancer and... Insects that drill into the, your eyeball. 
He didn't create the world like that. The, the world has been broken. It's been marred. It's been spoilt. We allowed the devil in because we loved ourselves more than we loved God. And we gave a doorway for the devil to come in and to spoil and break our world and break our relationship with God and separate him from us forever. That is not God's responsibility. That's our responsibility. Are you with me? Yeah? So that would be my first response. My second response is this. You know, when he says things like, we have to spend our life on our knees thanking him, what kind of God would do that? Well, it's very important that we come to terms with the fact that God is God. Okay? <laughs> it's so important. So there's Moses. Okay, um, I'll go and tell the people, God, what's your name? What's your name, God? And God says, I am who I am. Yeah? I am who I am. That's my name. Uh, if any of you know your Latin, you'll know the Latin for I am is ego sum. The root of this is exactly where we get the word ego. God is saying, I am ego. Now, if someone has an ego, we are a bit concerned about it. We think, oh, no, they're, they're thinking above their station. The one person in the universe who can say, I've got an ego, is God. Okay? Because if God gives room to anyone else, he's no longer God. No, I am who I am. It's really important you get this. He has no rival and he has no equal. We don't worship many gods. We worship one God in three persons. And if God concedes that he has a rival or an, even just an equal, you know, if he concedes that, he no longer is God. That thought should explode in your minds and hearts as a defining revelation that gives you overwhelming and expressible joy. <laughs> God is God. He doesn't have to defend himself. He is who he is. He is the source of life for us. He is the source of every good thing for us. There is nothing in this world that can rival God in his love and his goodness and his justice and his perfection and his satisfaction for you. If you want to enjoy your life, you cannot enjoy it better than enjoying God. Because he is God. And if he's saying, well, I'm God, but it's all right, go and have a few beers and get smashed at a nightclub, it's all right with me. Or, you know, go and, uh, you know, no, I'm not going to go into all these illustrations. I always get myself in trouble because people think, well, you're getting at me. You know, well, maybe I am. But, you know. you know, if you're saying, no, hang on, God, I know you're great, but actually I'd rather do. Well, then we're suddenly saying, well, God's not God. God's saying, no, I am who I am. I am God. I'm the best thing for you. Don't give your love and devotion and worship to anything else because there's nothing better. Ego. I am who I am. Ego sum. That's it. You won't top it. I have no rival. I have no equal. I'm the best thing you will ever know or ever have in this world or the next, is what God is saying. Okay? So because of this, he demands our love. If he just demanded justice, believe me, we wouldn't be here today. Okay, so this is what the case against people who just think that there's just one God. They, 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 they don't have a Trinitarian view. The Trinitarian view opens up for us the fact that God's motivation is love. 
and justice, but primarily God is love. You know, he, he saved us because he loved us. But the reason, the only way he's able to save us is by being a God of perfect justice. And if people just think of God as just, if it's just that God wants justice, we would not be here. Because justice is that we should have been destroyed on the first day that sin came into the Garden of Eden. You know, human race, bit of an experiment, didn't work. What, what should I create next? No, it's because God is a God of love demonstrated to us in this community of the Trinity that we're here today. And he demands our love. God loves the Son. He wants to share that love with us. He has sent his Son to rescue us, to be just and the one who justifies, and has shed his love abroad in our hearts through his Holy Spirit. He demands our worship, but he will not force us to worship him. It's really important that you understand that. So we had a little bit of a vocabulary exercise about begetting and creating. All right, now there's a bit of a vocabulary exercise about what it means to demand. All right? Are you feeling warm? You're looking warm. Fancy a glass of water? See the condensation running down the outside? Now, this bottle can't demand to be drunk. Drink me, drink me, drink me, come on. But there is something about the nature of this that makes you want to drink it. Yeah? It demands to be drunk. Are you with me? It doesn't have to tell you to drink it to demand to be drunk. Because <laughs> you are thirsty. And water demands to be drunk. Jesus demands our love and demands our worship. Not because he's standing in their arms akimbo saying, come on, worship me, worship me. He doesn't have to do that. Who he is and what he has done is enough to demand our worship and demand our love. Who else can we turn to? He's the one who has the words of eternal life. The circumstances leave no other response. It demands our love and our worship. We are created to love, okay? That you are created to love. We're made in the image of God. God is love. You're made in his image. You are hardwired to love, all right? You will love something. You look at the, the most evil, uh, hideous person in the world, they're giving their love to something. In that case, themselves. Or to something even more hideous. Everybody is wired for love. We're giving our love to something. Okay? We are created to love. And that love is best satisfied in God because he is the source and the giver of life and love. Adam and Eve sinned because they loved something more than God. Okay, here's a, a great quote uh, from a guy called Michael Reeves in, in the book The Great God. He says, it's not that Adam and Eve stopped loving. They were created as lovers in the image of God, and they could not undo that. Instead, their love turned. When the Apostle Paul writes of sinners, this is really helpful. When the Apostle Paul writes of sinners, he describes them as lovers. Yeah? We're made, we're created to be lovers. He says they're lovers of themselves. They're lovers of money. They're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. We're created to be lovers of God. And yet we give our love to other things. 
God is saying, I am who I am. There is nothing better to give your love to than to me. If I concede that what you're giving your love to is better, then I'm no longer God, which is why my name is I am who I am. So, lovers we remain, this is Michael Reeves, but twisted. Our love misdirected and perverted. Created to love God, we turn to love ourselves and anything but God. And this is just what we see in the original sin of Adam and Eve. Eve takes and eats the forbidden fruit because a love for herself and gaining wisdom for herself has overcome the love she might have for God. You are created to love. What takes your love? I just want you to think about that. I know it's warm and a bit stuffy, all right? But this is a very, very important question. This is a worldview question. This is a worldview question that Paul encountered on the road to Damascus. Who are you? You're the son of God. You demand my love. You demand my worship. What demands your love? Every one of us in this room is created to love. What takes your love? Is it yourself? Is it money? Is it sex? Is it the praise of others? Demands your love. You shape yourself around trying to get attention. Is it fitting in with others? Is it a childish habit? What demands your love? Is it a community that is not the church? You know, a nightclub or a football club or something. Demands your love. God wants to have a loving family and he wants to share his love and himself. And my appeal and my invitation to us all is what is taking your... To what are you giving your love? What is it that takes your love, that preoccupies your thinking, that makes demands on your time, to which you will give your money? To what do you turn when you need to give or receive love? Because you're created to love. What is that? that you first give your love to will tell us where you're at or you tell yourself where you're at in your relationship with God. So I just want to make two observations and then we're going to uh, just respond to God about this. First of all, if Jesus is not your first love, you need to get to know him better. This is what I'd want to say to Stephen Fry. You need to get to know him better. If you really knew him, if you really know who Jesus is, if you really know what he's like, if you really know what he's done, if you really know how he's come and saved and delivered us, you'd love him. You'd love him with all your heart. You'd give him your love. You know, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son, does not have life. No one who, and it goes, here we go, when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son to redeem those who were under the law so that we might be adopted as sons because of Jesus. We live by faith in the son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And when we see that Christ is the subject of all the scriptures, that he is the word, the Lord, the son who reveals the father, the promised hope, the true temple, the true sacrifice, the great high priest, the ultimate king, 
Why else would we not give our love to him? So I just ask you just to reflect on that now. Just reflect on that. We're going to pray soon. Where is your first love? If Jesus is your first love, then you will need to give up other things that might take your love. It's going to cost something, okay? Other things will compete for his love. And he's the pearl of great price. He's the one that we say, no, we're going to sell everything for this because this is the most precious thing. I was reading in 2 Samuel 24 where David had been uh, guilty of a number of, uh, of mistakes and sins and in the end, he comes to a bit of a crisis. He says, right, I've got to build an altar to God. I've got to demonstrate my worship to God. He comes first. And, um, and they're trying to find somewhere for him to build this altar. And someone offers him some land where he could build an altar. And, uh, and said, well, you know, uh, you can have it for free. You can just have it. And he says, no, I'm not going to take it for free, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. And there's, there's something of an amazing balance in our relationship with God that says, you know, Jesus gives freely his love to us and it costs us everything. It's a free gift that will take everything you've got. It's a free gift that demands that you sacrifice everything for him. Yeah? And so I'm just appealing to you because for you to know the wonders of the love of God, he will not tolerate a rival or an equal. Are you giving your love to something that is not God? Maybe you're here and you're not someone who's ever given your love to Jesus. It's, you know, this is the first time you've had to consider that. I'm telling you, there's no more precious or beautiful thing than to give your love to Jesus and to receive his love. To say to him, Jesus, I'm sorry that I've looked for things. I've looked to give my love to other things. When you're the most precious thing, you are who you are. Maybe you're someone who has been a Christian for a while, but you're thinking, you know what? If I'm honest with myself, I wonder if Jesus is my first love. I wonder if he is the first person I turn to when I want to give or receive love. Is Jesus my default in terms of my own satisfaction and my own reward and fulfillment in life? Or do I turn to other things? Are there other things that demand my love? Are there other things that demand my time, my resources and my energy? Because there is nothing more precious than the love of Jesus and to give your love to him. So I just want to invite the, the worship team to come if uh, they're here. Should we just bow our heads? I'm just going to offer an invitation. And um, this is just between you and God, just where we're here right now. So just bow your heads and shut your eyes. If you don't feel comfortable doing that, you're under no obligation to do that. I can't, I can't demand that you do that. I just, uh, just want you to reflect because it's, it's so precious. Jesus is the Son of God the only begotten Son of the Father. And he is God. He's uniquely loved by the Father, and they share that love with us and invite us in. And they're not going to tolerate any rival. They 
are the best thing that can ever happen to you. So I just want to offer an invitation, just as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, this isn't about anything other than you making a statement before God. If you've never given your love to Jesus, if you've never done that, if you've never said, you know, Jesus, I want to give my love to you. I don't want to give my love to other things. I'm sorry I've tried to live my life my way. I'm sorry I've tried to find my fulfillment and satisfaction in other things. When you're the only one, Jesus, who has the words of eternal life, you're the only one who can save. You're the only one who can deliver me from the things of this world that are giving me pain and suffering. You're the only one who can do that. I want to give my love to you, Jesus. If you've never done that before, I just want to invite you to stand right now where you are. Their heads are bowed. Just stand. It's between you and God. Say, you know, Jesus, I want to give my love to you for the first time. I just want to make space to just create that opportunity. This is an invitation. Jesus demands our love. He demands our worship because of who he is, because of what he's done. And I just want to offer an invitation to those maybe you've been running with Jesus for some time, you've been following Jesus, but in sober evaluation, you're thinking, you know, I'm not sure Jesus is my first love. I'm not sure I've allowed Jesus to be first. There's other things that demand my attention, demand my love, demand my energy and resources. And I want to put a bullet in anything that would rival Jesus. Jesus, you're my first love. You come first. You're the one I turn to. I just want to invite you to stand. Again, just as our heads are bowed, it's just a, it's a, it's a statement of intent between you and God. Just saying, you know, Jesus, I don't want to keep trying to find my satisfaction in things, in anything else. I just want to find my satisfaction in you, Jesus. You're my first love. You're the tops. You're the, you're the one. You're the, you're the great king. You're the great God. You're the great deliverer. You're the one that I'm going to give my love and a, attention to. I'm not going to look for love anywhere else, Jesus. I'm going to look to you for love from which all flows. As I freely receive, I can freely give. I can better love my husband or wife or children or parents, I better love them as I receive your love and as I give my love to you. So if you just want to make a fresh statement to God today, just stand where you are and say, heads are bowed, it's just between you and God, say, no, you're, you're first, Jesus. I'm sorry if I've made you second place. No, you're first, Jesus. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.